Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, which is part of the Demcast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson in D.C., and today I'm going to be talking with Carissa Liller. She's a candidate for judge in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I've been writing about the need for more women judges and more diversity in the judiciary. We're going to be talking about her bid as well as what made her decide to run, why she's great for the job. Um, But she has a really interesting story. So even if you don't live in Pennsylvania, I know you're going to find what she has to say worthwhile and absolutely inspiring. I, I just love talking to strong women who are making a difference. And Carissa is an impressive candidate. But before we start that conversation, Start Me Up is a podcast that's supported by listeners. I don't have corporate funding, and right now I don't use advertisers. That means the show survives on your support. So maybe consider becoming a patron for any dollar amount, like $1. You can become a patron for $1 a month. That's $12 a year. That's You pay more for lattes. You won't even miss a dollar a month. If you decide you want to go for $5 a month, you get access to our um, End Another Thing segment, which I do with co-hosts at least two times a month. Next week, we're going to be talking with Steph Walton, so we're going to do a free show, and we're going to do End Another Thing. And then the following week, we're going to be talking with Sarah Wood again, and we'll be doing a free show with End Another Thing. Also, just, you know, you you might want to check out uh, some of my past interviews. I've talked to Kristen Johnston from CBS's Mom and third rock from the sun actress and activist Alyssa milano actor vincent d'onofrio racism expert tim wise and i've talked to uh f- former federal prosecutors like renato mariato <laughs> renato mariotti and glenn kirshner oh my gosh coming up on november 6 i'm going to be talking with the comedic duo frangela if you're a stephanie miller listener you already know who they are they are so freaking funny And they talk about politics. They talk about pop culture. I absolutely adore them. That show is going to be really fun and it's going to be lots of energy. Anyway, take a listen to some of the shows. You can just visit patreon.com slash startmeup. I have those shows that I mentioned highlighted right at the top so you can listen to any of them. Um, You can also find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. And could you do me a favor? If you're over there on iTunes, could you just like leave a good review? I've got 36 of them and that's great, but I could use some more. And I also just want to thank everybody who already supports the show. Um, After my chat with Carissa, I'm going to be sharing what I thought about last night's Democratic debate. So if you want to listen to what I have to say, stick around after the interview and you can hear my thoughts on that. And now please enjoy my conversation with Carissa Liller. Welcome, Carissa. Thanks, Kimberly. <laughs> I'm I'm really excited to talk to you because, as I said at the intro, um, and and you may not know, I've written a lot about the need for for women judges, and so I'm thrilled that you're running, and I'm really interested in hearing your story. So let's just dive in, and I wanted to tell everybody that you've got uh, on your website, um, which I am going to include the link to your website in the description of the Patreon pay, or, you know, our Patreon show, and the and that text description. So there is a website um, that you, there's a video where you tell your story, your personal story. So I want to hear about that. I just want to hear your, your journey to, to where you are now. Okay. Um, so I am one of four kids. I am a middle child having the true middle child syndrome. So um, <laughs> my parents were in their young twenties when they had us. So 
we grew up a lot of times in a family that struggled financially. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my brother was in the military, my grandfather, my dad, I've got uncles. So I I grew up in a family watching people serve others. Uh, My grandmother was in the Salvation Army. We helped her. So even as we were financially struggling, we were helping other people in the community via the Salvation Army. Hmm. And that really that really resonated with me. And I went to school. I went to college. Um, I got a psychology degree and uh, decided to become a social worker because I really wanted to help people and serve my community in the way that I could. And I did that for about three years. I did that in Pittsburgh, where I'm from, and went into some really uh, some of the poorest neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, really helping children who were being abused and neglected. And after three years of doing that, I just thought that there was a better way that I could be helping people with my abilities. So mm-hmm. I decided to go to law school, which is something that I'd always wanted to do. But again, my parents were not wealthy. I am the only person in my family who is an attorney. At that point, my sister and I were the only two on my dad's side who got college degrees. So I bit the bullet, moved in with my parents, and worked two jobs to put myself through law school and uh, became an attorney. Wow. That's really awesome. (laughs) And so (laughs) um, uh, I love that. I just love that. So let me ask you, just before we get into your bid, um, what's it like for you to be a woman in that field? I mean, does sexism play a part? If so, how big is it and how have you overcome it? I I think it does play a part. Um, Back in, back in 2099, 2000, when I was becoming an attorney, there were less women in my field Mm -hmm. than there are now. Um, in Pennsylvania right now, 62% of our attorneys are men and 38% are women. Mm -hmm. So there's still a big disparity in how many men and women attorneys we have. But when I started, I became a prosecutor. So I started my legal career as a prosecutor. So that is in the criminal field and there are not a lot of women in, in the criminal area of law. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was unusual for me, um, to, to become a prosecutor because I was dealing with mostly men in my office, mostly male defense attorneys, mostly male judges. <laughs> so when I would go out to do hearings in some of the community courts, people would mistake me for the uh, court reporter, <sighs> um, and think that I wasn't the attorney because right. I was a woman. So, but because I am educated, I know what I'm doing. I think that I earned my respect. Um, And I I do think that sometimes women have to do more to earn that respect Mm -hmm. in our industry. Um, And then I went into doing criminal defense and then I've been doing family law. Um, So in the area of family law, we do have more female attorneys doing family Mm -hmm. law. So it, it sort of was a shift to having some more gender parity doing the work that I do now. Mm-hmm. But, you, I mean, you still get certain pushback from people, but I think at the level of experience that I have now that people don't look at me more as, oh, well, she's a woman. Mm-hmm. It's more she knows what she's doing. She's been doing this a long time. She knows her stuff. She's a good litigator. So at the level that I'm at, I don't, I don't see the sexism as much, but you know, we still see it on our, our court. Mm -hmm. I mean, our, our court is made up of almost all men. Mm -hmm. So we we definitely have that sexism at play in certain areas of our field of work. So tell me why you decided to run to be a judge. And in, you know, I mean, I obviously you said you're a social worker and you want to fix the system. 
and change the system. Um, but I just want to kind of add to what we were just talking about. Did your decision um, to run have to do with the fact that there are so many men and you wanted to change that up also? It, it did. The main reason I want to run, though, is that, that I have been working with people for 23 years, helping people in crisis. Mm-hmm. And, and I see the really urgent need that our court has right now for a judge with family court experience. And I have that. So that is my first and foremost reason for wanting to run. Mm-hmm. And, and the secondary reason is that we do need some more diversity on our bench. We, we have right now 13 judges. 11 of them are men. We haven't had a new female judge in 12 years in our county. And one of our two women is retiring at the end of this year. But our population in Bucks County is is 52% women. Well, there you go. (laughs) Right. So we need some more representation on the bench. And and we desperately need judges with family court experience who have some compassion and the experience in that court to make good decisions for our families. Can you share your background and the experiences and qualifications which have prepared you to serve as Bucks County Judge? Sure. So, as I said, I, I am a former social worker, so I started off my, my real career um, as a social worker. I did that for three years with the Children and Youth Services. And doing that, I, I went into a lot of these neighborhoods, so I did intake. So I would literally go into people's homes. I would meet with them. I would meet with the children. I would go into the community. And I would be the one deciding whether or not these children needed to be removed from their household mm-hmm. and for their protection and to get them the services they needed. So I did that for three years, um, went to law school, came out, and I became a prosecutor. I was a prosecutor for four years, and then I went into doing criminal defense. So I did sort of the opposite side of that coin, which was great because it really has given me a broad perspective mm-hmm. and and really allows me to, to see all angles of a case. And then I also um, have been doing family law. So I've been doing family law mostly the last 16 years, um, which involves divorce matters, custody matters, protection from abuse, support. So that, that has been my main area of practice for the last 16 years. During that time also, I did um, one day a week, I would do mental health hearings for our Department of Mental Health. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, the attorney going out to do the mental health commitment hearings. So I really have been dealing with a lot of mental health issues within the courts, again, as a social worker, as an attorney. So I, I see those issues and how they affect people coming into our courts mm-hmm. and that our judges need to have that awareness. Wow. That, I mean, that's just, I can imagine that must be so difficult, especially when you're talking about deciding if children should stay in their home. I, I can't even imagine being put in that situation. And so obviously right. as a, as a judge, and then, and then I'm just going to say as a woman judge, it's, it's likely given you, like you said, there's a, a compassion that you would need, but it's an understanding of what it's really like out there. So if you're sitting on the bench and you're making these decisions, you're coming from a place of being there and seeing it with your own eyes. Right. And I, I'm also a mom. I've got a yeah. seven-year-old. So I, I am also and a single mom at that. So I, wow. I have experienced a lot in my, in my career, in my personal life. So I, I see things from different angles, which is a really unique thing to have as a judge, because I think we need more judges with that varied experience to bring to the bench. Yeah. Oh, wow. So like, okay, you're, let's say you win. <laughs> You know, uh, when a new judge begins, um, what area of the law are they typically assigned to? 
So in our in our county, in Bucks County, all of our new judges for the past 20 years go to our family court first. Okay. And all of our new judges, so hopefully I win um, in November. And then in January, all the new judges get sworn in and they will go to family court. Okay. So in 20 years, all of our judges go there, but in that same 20 years, none of them have had any real significant family law experience before taking the bench. Wow. So that's, that's what made me decide I needed to run because we need judges with some family court experience and I've got 16 years of it. Plus I've got the criminal court experience, the social work experience, the mental health experience, and I'm a mom. Yeah. So I, I think that all of those add up to me being the ideal candidate. Well, you know, when, when you say you're a mom, I think that really holds a lot of weight because obviously there's a lot of male judges out there who are fathers, but mm -hmm. it's, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to like necessarily um, say something negative about men, but our society is set up that women are always the caretakers, no matter if they have full-time jobs and, and men just usually do their job. So women like have two jobs. They're the mom and like a full-time mom and they have a job. And, and in your case, you've had like all these jobs and you've put yourself through school. <laughs> so I yeah. think, you know, I mean, it really is a unique position to be in, to be a mom, because I do think that it gives you a little bit more insight into the dynamics of family. And it's not to, I, I certainly don't want to be saying negative things about men. I just think that you, right. you and your story, clearly you have a certain experience that's going to, I think, be a little bit more, um, I don't know what the word is, but it, it, maybe empathic or just you're going to be able to have an insight that a lot of these male judges just don't have. Right. And I, I think it is, it is the experience personally and professionally. And listen, I've been representing people for 16 years. I've represented dads, I've represented moms, and I certainly have represented fathers who, you know, I ultimately get them primary custody of their children or they get 50, 50 custody. But I, I do think that being a single parent and being a mom gives you a different perspective mm -hmm. than than just being a dad in an intact relationship who's not necessarily taking on all of those roles mm -hmm. and wearing all of those hats that, that so many women wear. Not all women, but mm -hmm. a lot of women do that. And I think that that does give me the empathy, the compassion that, that is desperately needed in our family courts especially. So a judge who understands the struggles that people are going through, and I, I understand that on a personal level, I understand that from a level of representing clients, and you know, we they rely on me, and we, we develop a really close relationship mm -hmm. because these cases sometimes take a really long time. Yeah. And in family law, your clients need to trust you, and a lot of my clients, we have developed that really good trust and relationship, and I have former clients who are supporting me in my bid for judge. <laughs> So it's it's a really unique thing to have that kind of a close relationship. And, and in my experience doing all of my different roles as an attorney, those relationships only have developed in, in family court. You don't hmm. get as close to clients in, in criminal court because the cases are long. They take their shorter cases. You're done with them faster. And those those people aren't going through such an emotional crisis as they are in family court. Right. So, you know, we need judges to understand that. So, so having experienced it with my clients also for the past 16 years, 
gives me that unique perspective to bring to the bench hmm. to understand when people are coming in there, what struggles they're going through. So not just financially, but emotionally, personally. And and you need to exhibit some empathy and compassion for those people because they are at their emotional worst when they're coming into family court. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Why why don't you tell us about um, your family law practice and what makes your extensive experience in family law unique? So I, I am the only candidate who has 16 years of family law experience Um, And again, I do think that my experience as a litigator, having worked in in criminal court, has has given me an edge in the family arena because I have that experience trying cases. I have that experience dealing with people. And as a former social worker, no other candidate has that experience but myself. And having gone out and worked with so many children on, on so many different levels, again, has given me a really unique perspective that I can bring to the bench, that I bring to my cases, that, you know, I try to explain to my clients, this is what needs to be done in order to protect your kids. And, you know, sometimes calling them to court to testify is not the best thing for them, even though you might want that, this isn't going to be beneficial to them. So I understand that we need to put our kids first when it comes to court. Right. So. Wow. Are there any cases that you can talk about that helped shaped who you are? Yes. I can remember um, when I first started out doing family law, um, I had a woman come to me. um, She was an immigrant. She was an African immigrant. She had already been through the system by herself. Um, She had gotten a protection from abuse order against her husband, and they had a three-year-old child. So she gets an order um, protecting her from the husband's abuse, and uh, part of that order required her to return computers to the husband. The husband claimed that she didn't return them. The judge, um, a man who heard the case, took him for his word, used her order against her and put her in jail for six months. Oh my God. And therefore took away, um, her custody of her three-year-old child. She had always been the primary caretaker for the child. Um, so put this woman in jail for six months, which was the maximum that she could get over returning computers. And, um, so I got involved at that point. I, I couldn't believe it. I said, I, I can't believe that the judge would put you in jail over computers for yeah. six months. And indeed he did. So I got involved in the case and I fought to get her back custody of her daughter, who now at this point was, you know, almost four and a half, five years old by the time it took so long to get through the court system. Mm-hmm. And I thought there, there is no way that this should be happening in our courts. And I want to be the kind of judge who makes sure that cases are heard promptly, that they are fair outcomes for the, the offense that you're being accused of committing, even when it's in family court, that people aren't having their protection for abuse orders used against them when it comes to a property issue and that children aren't being taken from their parents for no legitimate reason. Mm -hmm. So that, that really has shaped who I am as a family law attorney and how I advocate for my clients and how I advocate for anybody going through that system. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that you need to be mindful of the repercussions that you are imposing on these children. I mean, that poor little girl went almost a year and a half without her mother. And that child suffered as a result of that. And I don't think this judge had any insight 
into the fact that he was making a life-altering decision for this poor child. Yeah. He just was concerned about my order wasn't complied with to the T, mm-hmm. and how dare you not abide by my order? It, it was the ego of it as right. opposed to what's happening here. Let me do what's best for this family. Let me do what's best for this child. And because I've been doing this for 16 years, because I've been resolving issues and reaching agreements and crafting those agreements, I have that experience to bring with me to the bench. And I understand how you can reach a resolution and create an order so that things are resolved, but you're not punishing people, especially Mm -hmm. children who, who shouldn't have been in the fray of this at all. Wow. You know, I want to ask you about something, and I'm not sure if you're uh, if you know, are you familiar with the Equal Rights Amendment? Yes. Um, I'm just wondering because, you know, I'm an Equal Rights Amendment advocate. And mm. I, you know, I know that there's a lot of men out there who argue women already have equal rights. And while we do have a lot of the same rights, um, we are, women are discriminated against at the workplace um, for various reasons. And it's, it, you know, extends into, um, when women, you know, like pregnancy discrimination. And so one of the arguments that I've, I've wondered about is that if we do get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified and enshrined into the Constitution, would it help men who are looking to have custody of children? And I ask this because, you know, you hear all the time that women are the ones who have the advantage in court. And A, is that true? And B, do you know if having an Equal Rights Amendment would make the system um, more equal when it comes to deciding on which parent would get custody or how how custody is, is figured out? Well, right now, I mean, in Pennsylvania, we have custody factors that a a judge is required to consider in a custody matter, but it it leaves a lot to the discretion of the judge, Mm -hmm. which is why we need judges who know family law that are going into that court. Mm -hmm. Because when you don't know family law, when you haven't practiced it, you do go into that court with biases. And, And I think that sometimes... Sometimes, not always, I think that sometimes women do benefit from those biases. And when judges don't want to take the time to understand the facts of the case and to listen to it and to weigh the the factors, that they rely on their biases to make a decision. And I I think that, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment might, might protect fathers more, but there is litigation that's being proposed, litigation, legislation being proposed in Pennsylvania to to start people off at a 50 50 mm-hmm. um starting point and I, I i don't know if i necessarily agree with that because i think that it, it should require the judge to look at cases fact specifically yeah. with each facts of each case but um you know I, I think that parents should be looked at at an equal footing but you need to consider the facts of each and every case because sometimes there are, are dads who are the significantly better parent. Yeah. Sometimes there are moms. Right. Sometimes neither is fit to parent and, and they're going to a grandparent. I've handled many cases like that or they're going to a relative, an aunt or an uncle. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, I, I think it's, it's complicated when you get into the family arena because there are so many moving pieces. And in family court, it, it's not as if the case is already done. Like in criminal court, the crime has been committed. In civil court, the car accident has already happened. Mm-hmm. In family court, it's always a, a living and breathing case, which is why in Pennsylvania, custody is always modifiable because circumstances change. So, and I think that's a good thing that it's always modifiable because yeah. people change, circumstances change, and I think that's why it's it's good to have that. But this is why it's imperative to have judges who have that family law experience to know what to look for, yeah. to know how to to dig deeper and to drill down and, and get into the facts of the case and to find out what's happening. And then good decisions can be made. Now, do you, I mean, this might be a strange question, but I guess, like, how often do you see these biases? Do you see them all the time um, with judges specifically? Is it something that you think is a, a minor problem or a big problem? What's your opinion on that? Well, I mean, I, I see it in, in the family court. I, I see, I don't know if I would describe it as much of a bias as I, I would say that, that we need more of the family law experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think if you have that experience and you understand that you shouldn't be biased, those biases go away. So, you know, I, I think that it sort of goes hand in hand, if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it totally does. Um, how many, just out of curiosity, how many openings are there for Bucks County Judge? There are three right now. Okay. So we had, um, right now we have 13 judges. We uh, had new seats, two new seats were created via legislation mm-hmm. um, about two years ago. Because our family court was so overburdened, hmm. they wanted more judges being added to our court. So the third opening is as a result of one of our two women judges retiring. So there are right. three seats open. So can you explain the process of running for judge and how that all works out? Just so so listeners understand, um, you know, like, I've, like I said, I've written about the fact that we need more women and more people of color and just basically more diversity. So what happens when you run? What's the process? So um, in Bucks County, so we're, we are one of the few states that still elect judges, as a matter of fact. Other states will appoint. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, there are, there are some issues with both processes. But in, in Bucks County, we uh, seek the endorsement of, the, of your political party. Mm-hmm. So whatever your party affiliation is, you seek the endorsement of that party. And then that, that's a process. So you have to go to the meetings, you have to speak with people, you have to tell them your qualifications, you have to tell them why you're best, the best candidate. And then they, they do a vote and they endorse you. And then you have to go to the primary election. And so there were 10 candidates running in the primary for six positions. So there are three Republicans and three, three Democrats that could make it through to the general election. So I was the top vote getter on the Democratic side, and um, so now I am one of the six candidates in the general election. So ultimately, at the end of the day, so on November 5th is our election, and only three candidates can win ultimately. So I'm hoping that I'm one of them, but it, it, it's a really... <laughs> It's a long process. Yeah. Um, you have to make a lot of connections with people. You you know have to, to let people in the community know, the voters know, what the court does. So it's a lot of education because people, unless they've come to our court, they don't know what the court does So mm-hmm. or unless you know somebody who has been here. So, so many times, so I've been out door knocking. I've been going to events to introduce myself and educate people on what the court does and 
why I'm the best qualified candidate for it and what my background is. But so many times people say anybody who has dealt with the court most often says they've dealt with the family court. Mm-hmm. So it, it is our busiest division and the, the division that handles the most cases throughout the year. So that, I think, is the court that people are the most familiar with. Well, then that just leads me to the last question, which is, uh, could you tell us why you are the most qualified out of the pool that you're in? So I, I believe I'm the most qualified because I am the only one with the experiences that I have. So I'm the only candidate with 16 years of family law experience. I'm the only candidate who is a former social worker. I am the only candidate who is a former prosecutor. I am the only candidate, I didn't talk about this earlier, but I've made new law in Pennsylvania twice, um, hmm. once in the area of, of family law involving the case that I'd spoken about with the woman and the, uh, the computer, mm-hmm. and uh, once in the area of criminal law. So I have made new law on two occasions in Pennsylvania. I've also volunteered my time in the Protection from Abuse Court for the past 16 years. So I, I understand the workings of this court. I am in this court almost daily for the past 20 years. This is where my practice is. So I think that's what makes me the most qualified candidate. Well, it sounds to me like you are. I mean, you know, obviously I don't well, live in, in Pennsylvania, but um, <laughs> you are you're a very interesting woman. I'm really grateful you. that you're doing what you do. Uh, I'm a feminist. I'm a Democrat. And I really appreciate strong women who are going out there to make a difference. And so clearly you're one of them. <laughs> and, Thank, and, you. Uh, Thank you. Talking to you is so fascinating. Um, and I appreciate you being on the show. Why don't you tell people, uh, what is your Twitter, Twitter handle? I can be found at Carissa Liller, and it's C-H-A-R-I-S-S-A Liller, L-I-L-L-E-R. And I also have a Facebook page, um, Carissa Liller for Judge, and my website is Judge. Awesome. So what I'll be doing is I'm going to be putting your links into the text of the Patreon description of the show so everybody there can go follow you and support you in any way that uh, they can. Check her out. She's interesting. Thank you for being on the show, Carissa. Thank you for having me, Kimberly. And good luck to you. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was, that was interesting. I really love, like I said, I love talking to women who are making a difference. And she is somebody who, if I lived in Pennsylvania, I think she'd get my vote. <laughs> um, wow. So I think that, you know, like I'll say that when I've written about the, the need for my, more diversity, it, it's because I've written articles and they're awful. They're awful articles. But basically it's the idea that white men rape women and children and the white men in power, judges specifically, let them get away with it. You know, there, there's something that I wrote specifically that just had this awful list of a variety of white men, some of them wealthy, who raped children. And I mean, I mean toddlers. I mean babies. And one of them was, I don't know, like a multimillionaire. And the judge said that because he was so wealthy, and because he was such, he was used to such a, you know, a lavish life that he wouldn't do well in prison. So he got no sentence. He raped a fucking baby and he got no sentence. So I don't know that a woman would come up with that same kind of a ruling. And I really hope that Carissa wins because she's clearly smart. And we need people who are going, we need judges who are going to have compassion and have understanding. So, uh, 
if you live in Pennsylvania, check her out. She sounds pretty awesome to me. <laughs> now, let's get into my thoughts on the Democratic debate. Oh, my God. It was kind of hard to watch. Um, I mean, I think each candidate had their strengths and each candidate had their weaknesses. So I'm going to begin with Elizabeth Warren because she's still my candidate. Um, I think that she didn't do herself any favors by refusing to answer the question that was posed to her by many people on that stage, specifically Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. And before anybody, th- like, I don't think they attacked her. I think they went after her hard, which is what they're supposed to do because it's a freaking debate, right? They're trying to knock her off of her uh, front runner, uh, you know, status right now. She's kind of sharing it with Joe Biden. There are some polls where she's beat him, but only by a very small number. And he's still leading with the African-American vote. So I think they're kind of like, you know, in a tie, kind of a tie. Um, and so, of course, the the people who are looking to be the nominee who don't who are not front runners are going their goal is to knock that front runner down. And you're not going to do it by being all nicey nice. So one of the things that I've said about Elizabeth Warren is that I wish that she would be a little bit more clear on her Medicare for all plan. And she didn't seem to want to say what Bernie said. And Bernie just said it. He was like, all right, look, yes, your taxes are going to go up. Duh. Your taxes would go up for Medicare for all, but you have no medical expenses anymore. So let's just say you pay $1,200 a month in medical expenses. Maybe that is um, prescription medication. Maybe it's co-pays, whatever it is. Um, now, I don't know the numbers, so I'm just going to pull it out of my you-know-what. But, okay, let's say your taxes are going to go up $400 a month. Well, that's going to be still a savings for you of $800, because you won't have any medical expenses anymore. While your medical expenses were $1,200, um, and then now they're gone, but you, you have to pay $400 more in taxes, you're saving $800. And the majority of the people that are going to pay for Medicare for All are the wealthy, the top 1%. They'll pay the most. And of course, that's why they don't like it. But they'll pay the most. And then the rest of us, yes, we're going to see higher taxes, but it's going to be lower overall cost per family. And I wish Elizabeth would just say it. And I saw Claire McCaskill last night on MSNBC talking about, um, you know, the fact that that could be the chink in her armor, but she made an interesting point. And I don't know if it's true or not, but she said that possibly um, Elizabeth Warden is going to pivot more toward the middle if she does get the nomination. So she doesn't want to get too deep in all the, the numbers and stuff like that, but she doesn't necessarily have to. She could just say it like Bernie did. Yes, your taxes are going to go up, but you're going to have no out-of-pocket costs for medical expenses. Um, if she does go, you know, I mean, the thing, here's the bottom line. I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. Elizabeth's plan for medical Medicare for all and Bernie's plan is not going to fly through Congress, even if we get a, you know, a, a bright, bright blue Senate and and House. It's just not going to, people aren't going to vote for it because it basically means a humongous overhaul of the system. And instead of doing that, we should go for a public option. And Elizabeth's argument last night for it, and I, I understand it's a valid argument. She said basically that this particular system with a public option means people who can afford insurance can get the better, I guess, insurance. But the public option means people who don't have insurance get it 
it, they just get it. Um, she seems to want to hold on to the idea that, um, you know, having any kind of insurance company is not beneficial to, to the voter. And I agree. I mean, I think, I think we need to eliminate insurance in the long run, but it's not going to happen overnight. Maybe it's a five or 10 year process. And it's a kind of process that, that's going to happen on its own, as opposed to a legislator or a president or, you know, somebody in government taking it away all at one shot. It'll just ease into it. And, and human beings, the voters are the ones who are going to be guiding it in that direction. So it's not going to be this big rip away of something that you're comfortable with, or you feel safe with. Um, so I think that that was the only flaw. I think that overall, you know, she, she did. And the, Oh, well, I, I'm sorry. I have one more criticism for her. And I think it's, she seemed a little taken aback by the fact that all the, uh, other candidates kind of went after her. And that surprised me because I, I thought she's walking into this understanding that she's sharing the front runner status with Joe Biden. So of course she's going to be a target. Of course they're going to go after her. Um, the only mean-spirited attack I thought was from Beto, who called her punitive and divisive, which I disagree with him on that. I don't think she's punitive at all. I think that he was wrong to do that and wrong to say that. I think she's only divisive because there are people out there who want to pin socialist on her. And yeah, sh sure, she's a democratic socialist, but she said before that she also believes in capitalism. So she's kind of a, she's like a hybrid. Um, but of course, you know, the the Republicans are going to paint her as a socialist. They've painted Joe Biden as a freaking socialist. So I don't think she's divisive. I think that when she's out there on the stump and she's talking to people, they love her and they understand and they see that she understands them. Um, so, you know, she, I think she came across as a little defensive um, when, when she was being challenged, especially by Buttigieg and Klobuchar, because they went for her. But I got to say, I thought that they were valid. I thought their points were valid. Um, I don't think that I, I think she could have maybe this is just going to be a lesson for her. And maybe the next debate, she'll understand what she's up against. And she won't show her defensiveness as much. I don't think anything that she did was disqualifying. And I realize that healthcare is like the, one of the number one, you know, parts of her campaign. But at the same time, I don't think that we're all so confused as to how this is going to be paid for. She's just not specific, giving us specifics. But it doesn't really matter because that's, you know, the job of the president, as Pete Buttigieg said, is to kind of sway and in, in, in like encourage um, a, a particular mindset. So Elizabeth Warren is not going to be writing the Medicare for All bill all by herself and, and passing it all by herself. She has to rely on Congress, and she knows, as well as everybody else, it's not going to pass in its totality. It's going to be incremental. So I think right now she's catering to the progressives in, in, in the Democratic you know, voter block. And, and then once we get to the general, if she's the nom, we'll see if she pivots in any direction. I don't know. Uh, okay, so then I want to go over, I thought, like I said, I thought Beto O'Rourke, um, I just thought it was kind of a low blow that he went after her like that. I don't think it's the worst thing that could ever happen, but I just would have preferred it, he could have handled it differently. And then I also felt it was very awkward and weird when Kamala Harris went after Elizabeth Warren for not supporting her effort to get Trump kicked off of Twitter. Now, I mean, Trump's never going to get kicked off of Twitter. He just won't. As much as we all would love it, it's not going to happen. And so, you know, there was this one moment when 
when Kamala had said, you know, will you join me in this effort? And Elizabeth was like, well, you know what? I'm not only do I want him kicked off of Twitter, I want him, you know, kicked out of the White House. And there was like, you know, Kamala had this thing where she went, wow, like that was some terrible answer as if she was avoiding. And I thought that was just a dumb hill to to die on, which I think she kind of died on that hill. I and mean, not, not her candidacy per se, but that, but that argument, I disagreed with her approach. I thought it made her look, I don't know, a little petty. And it was like, it's not the most, our our most important goal right now is not to get Trump kicked off of Twitter. It's to get him kicked out of the White House. And so I thought Elizabeth handled herself, handled herself well. I wasn't pleased with the way Kamala spoke to her. But again, is it disqualifying? No. Uh, And that leads us to Joe Biden and how he kind of yelled at Elizabeth and said, well, I mean, not yell like screaming, but he did raise his voice and he did insist that, um, you know, first of all, he comes on and he says, I'm the only candidate who's ever achieved anything big on this stage. Well, of course, we'll give it to him. He did achieve big things in the Obama administration. It wasn't him alone, but he was part of all of it. So yes, he deserves credit for what he's done. But Elizabeth Warren so aptly pointed out that she worked on consumer Um, protections and she was able to actually get that done and then he had to point out and kind of yell at her like I was the one who got you those votes and ooh, that was not a good look for him not at all and and basically I think it showed his insecurity that she is you know neck and neck with him and he didn't like it so I don't think he you know do I think once again do I think it's disqualifying no I don't think anybody said anything disqualifying on that stage who was a viable candidate Uh, I just I think that Joe Biden needs to read the room and I don't think he ever will. You know, he's he's in his 70s. He's pretty much set in his ways and he's just going to be Joe Biden and people are going to decide if they want him or not. We'll see what happens. I thought Bernie, everybody said Bernie uh, seemed great. You know, he did a great job. He was very clear. God, he said that. I wrote the damn bill. It's like, please stop with that. You've already said it once. You said it twice. The third time, just shut up. But um I mean, you could still point out that you wrote the bill, but stop using the same line would be my, if I was on his campaign, I'd say, all right, enough. Three times, that's enough. But he was very clear. And I really appreciated that he just said it, said it plain. Your taxes are going to go up if we have Medicare for all, period. He just said it. Um, Outside of that, you know, he didn't, nothing he said changed my opinion of him. Uh, Buttigieg, I thought, was interesting because he decided that he was going to be a little bit more hardcore in his approach. And I think he did a good job. I think when he went after Warren, he was also very clear. I did not see it as an attack. He was really trying to get her to clarify her position and explain the costs. And she didn't want to do it in a way that he wanted her to do it. And so I think he was just hard on her. Which, okay, you know what? She's going to be up against Trump. If she can't handle Buttigieg, then she's not going to be able to handle Trump. So um, that's the way I look at it. You know, he wasn't mean-spirited. He wasn't being an asshole to her. He was just straight up saying, how are you going to pay for this? I think you're not really being honest about this. And then um, Klobuchar. I thought, that ah, I really like her. And I would feel comfortable voting with her. The issue is that she's not charismatic and voters want somebody who's charismatic. And I noticed that when she went after Elizabeth Warren, again, I say the same with the same kind of attitude that Pete Buttigieg did. I felt a little resentment in her voice because, you know, she feels that um, 
like Elizabeth Warren is trying, you know, she's kind of like, oh, Klobuchar was painting the picture that Elizabeth Warren is, says we can only do it this way. And Klobuchar is like, no, we, we have multiple ways we could do it. And we shouldn't criticize everything because we just all have different opinions about this. Anyway, Klobuchar, when she was challenging Warren, you could tell she was nervous. She never stuttered. She never broke. She always stood strong. But she had that like nervousness when she was talking. And that uh, just works against her. And I wish that she could get over that because she's really strong. And frankly, I mean, she, she's, uh, she appeals to never Trumpers as well as to somebody like me. And I really do consider myself incredibly pro- progressive. You know, I mean, I just I think that Amy Klobuchar is, is realistic that, you know, there's only so much we're going to be able to accomplish at once and that we're going to have to take small steps. And, you know, you take a look at the Affordable Care Act, and that was a huge overhaul. And we were able to get that passed, but it was a tough, it was tough to do it. And there were all kinds of glitches. And the public option didn't go through. I think it can go through now. But um, I think the Klobuchar is Klobuchar is the kind of person that makes me feel like she can just get the job done. She's just got to work on that nervous thing. That's my only critique of her because I thought for the most part she did a good job. And again, I'm not going to come down on any of the candidates for going after the top tiers because that's what they need to do. You know, she's, she doesn't have the numbers right now. So in order to get the numbers, she's got to say, hey, look at me. She's got to like pound her chest a little bit <laughs> and say, I can do this. And I think she did it. Um, and Buttigieg, like I said, I thought, I thought he did a good job. Um, did, it, did it change how I felt about him? No. I think that, you know, here's what I think about Buttigieg. When I was watching him, every time I watch him, everything he says is so reasonable. And you're like, yeah. Absolutely. The only concern that I have is that he's in his 30s, which, okay, he's not a baby, but he's got great ideas. Can he execute those ideas successfully? Um, I think that when he, after he's a governor or a senator, I think that he will be able to execute those ideas um, successfully. I think he just is a little too young. And that's not ageism. It's experience. You know, I look at myself when I was 38 years old and now I'm 51 and I feel like there's a world of difference. I understand life so much better. And I mean, I certainly don't have all the answers and neither will he when he's my age, but he's going to have that experience that's going to help him um, create, you know, a, a strong plan and strategy to execute those ideas. So that's what I think about him. Beto uh, or Beto, I could just say, again, I didn't like what what he said about um, Elizabeth Warren, her being punitive. Other than that, I don't know. He was just Beto. It didn't really change me anyway. Like I didn't change. And then, oh my God, Tulsi. Goodbye, Tom Steyer. Goodbye, Andrew Yang. Goodbye. I'm not interested. That's what I feel about them. I don't care. Tulsi is a Russian asset. She brought it up, which was stupid. And then everybody made fun of her on Twitter, which she deserved. And she is a Russian asset. So goodbye. 
Uh, who else? Who else? Oh, and uh, I did bring up the Joe Biden thing. So, yeah, I didn't like I mean, as far as Joe Biden is concerned, I think he had some strong moments. And I think he's absolutely right that we have to go after Trump. And, and I do think that there is merit to the point that he has been there and he has seen firsthand how an administration deals with issues and problems and big pieces of legislation. So, um, you know, whoever the candidate, whoever the nominee is in 2020, I'm going to be voting for them. And right now I still I still feel like Warren is my candidate. Um, I don't know that that's going to change, but we'll see what happens as, as you know, time goes on and, and all that good stuff. So there's my little rundown of the, uh, of the democratic debate. I just, Oh my God, they're like, I look forward to them and then I completely cringe while I'm watching them at least during, during parts. Cause other times I'm cheering, but I don't know if you're like me, but I watched the whole thing and that was my takeaway. So yes, next week we're going to be talking with Steph Walton. We're going to be revisiting our lovely friendship. And, um, I think we'll just like to make the formal announcement then, uh, for anybody who's listening now or still listening to the show, I mentioned, I think last week that she, uh, you know, has a life. She's running for city council. She's got jobs. She's got children. She, she was able to commit to two shows per month. Um, but now it's just that, you know, her workload is getting so heavy. So instead of two shows per month, we're just, she's just a regular, she's going to be on all the time, but you know, meaning like maybe once a month, she's not going away. She's just maybe not going to be on as much. So, uh, next week we're going to do the show, the free show. Then we're going to do end another thing. And as I mentioned at the start of the show on November 6th, we're going to have Frangela. Oh my God. They're so much fun. If you don't know them, you should totally check them out on Twitter because they're so much fun. Uh, let's see what else. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter, author Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. I also have a Patreon writing site. So um, that is Kimberly A. Johnson, or I should say patreon.com slash Kimberly A. Johnson. Uh, if you're not familiar with my writing there, please check it out. And you can also visit Kimberly A. Johnson Amazon page. I've written four books, so please check those out also. Alrighty, that's going to be it for now, and we will talk to you next time.